Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is George Skangos. George is the CEO of San Francisco-based Veer Biotechnology. Veer has been all over the news the past couple of months. It's at the forefront of companies racing to discover and develop broadly neutralizing antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus that sparked a global pandemic. Veer was founded in early 2017 by some deep-pocketed venture investors who saw big strides being made in immunology for cancer, but a real gap in how that immunology was being applied to the fight against infectious diseases. Veer was able to pull together a lot of money, a variety of technology platforms, and a lot of smart people over the past three years. If you have time for a deeper backstory, listen to a previous episode of The Long Run from a year ago when George was the guest. The company has been making progress, but the value of its work became more abundantly clear as the world came to grips with the seriousness of COVID-19 in January of 2020. It has an antibody discovery platform that could be quite useful in the near term. Veer has been working intensely with partners that can help with various aspects of the effort. GSK, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, Wuxi, and Samsung Biologics among them. In this conversation, George spoke about the scientific rationale for what Veer is doing and the changing approach to collaboration and regulation necessary to operate at pandemic speed. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to tell you about the latest sponsor of the long run, RareSight. RareSight delivers precision biology solutions for circulating tumor cell analysis designed to accelerate the pace of your cancer research. RareSight leverages a world-class assay design team and end-to-end platform with biomarker-enabling technology to provide CTC assays that are rigorously validated for accuracy and reproducibility. RareSight is the only full-service provider delivering custom assay development services, long-term biobanking of patient samples, CLIA-validated CTC enumeration, multi-biomarker analysis, and single-cell retrieval for DNA sequencing. RareSight currently supports a wide range of global clinical trials with deep expertise, personalized service, and short turnaround times. Keep your research on track by engaging the RareSight services team at info at rarsight.com or at rarsight.com slash rc. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love reading Timmerman Report newsletter. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and George Skangos on The Long Run. Welcome, George Skangos, to The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Happy to be here. So obviously, you're very busy these days, George, and I've got a lot of ground I want to cover, a lot of questions, and I'm sure the listeners do too, about the science, collaborative aspects, maybe even managing during this uh, difficult time. So I I thought it would be good to just start with a little bit of background on Veer. I mean, you're an infectious disease company purposely built with a couple of interesting platforms going back about three years. How were you positioned uh, as a company when this news broke about the novel coronavirus? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we we are uh, extraordinarily well positioned. 
Uh, as you said, we started about three years ago. We uh, made a number of acquisitions and signed a number of collaborations to bring in a set of technologies into the company focused on infectious diseases. One of the acquisitions we made was a company called Humabs that had been started in um, Bellinzona, Switzerland, in the southern Italian part of Switzerland. Founder there was a, a guy named Antonio Lanzavecchia, who's a National Academy of Sciences, very well-known B-cell immunologist. Their focus over the past decade has been to go to patients who've recovered from infection with a variety of pathogens, screen large numbers of patients to identify individuals whose serum had unusually broad or potent activity, and then go back to those individuals and be able to isolate large numbers of, of B cells uh, and screen the antibodies functionally, not just for binding, but for um, neutralization. And so they were able to do this successfully with Ebola. You know, antibody that uh, they isolated was one of the two uh, therapies that worked in the Congo in their recent trial conducted by the NIH. We have a pan-flu antibody that recognizes all strains of flu since the 1918 pandemic. And we had isolated uh, before this outbreak uh, antibodies from patients who'd recovered from SARS. Uh, we had anticipated, they had anticipated, that uh, there would be additional coronavirus outbreaks. So they had already screened uh, the collection of SARS-1 antibodies for their ability to neutralize other coronaviruses. So we knew we had some, uh, some antibodies that were specific to SARS, and we had others that were more broadly neutralizing. When the uh, COVID-2 and the COVID-19 epidemic became clear, we, of course, screened those antibodies for their ability to neutralize COVID-2. Uh, and we have some. This is, a, this is a pretty clever platform, really. It allows us to learn from Mother Nature that there are some people out there who have something about their, their antibody profile that enables them to be broadly you know, defended against a particular pathogen. And, and we're seeking to learn from that and build on that, right? That's exactly right. You know, in the case of flu, we had to screen a large number of people to identify an individual whose serum was capable of neutralizing very diverse strains of flu. Uh, we went back to that individual and screened 100,000 antibodies to find two that were capable of broadly neutralizing all strains of flu. Now, when you say broadly neutralizing, what does that mean? It means that they neutralize every strain of flu A that's arisen since the 1918 pandemic. All the pandemic strains, all the seasonal strains, and even many avian strains that haven't yet been into humans that could represent the next pandemic strains. So, and they, the uh, ability to neutralize all those is potent. And so it's the only antibody we know of, flu antibody, that is potent enough and broad enough so you can get sufficient antibody into a, you know, a couple of mils that you can inject IM to think about using prophylactically. And in all likelihood, this is the kind of antibody that the virus will find very difficult to escape. That is exactly the thought because the epitope to which that antibody binds has been conserved through all those years of evolution, uh, it is likely to be very difficult for the virus to mutate that region and therefore escape the antibody without uh, losing uh, fitness. 
Okay, so you had this platform and um, you were aware, or people at your company were aware, that it had been used to interrogate um, SARS and MERS. Um, but, I mean, this wasn't like a top priority. You have a lot of other programs going on, um, hepatitis B, RSV, uh, cytomegalovirus, just to name a few. Um, do you remember a particular moment when um, the news um, emerged from China that, that this was really a big deal and someone at your company said, hey, maybe, maybe we can really do something about this? Yeah, it was um, very early in January when the... Um our CSO, Skip Virgin, you know, came to me and he said, this is the big one. This is a, this is going to be a major event in our lifetime and we need to scale up here. We had already been looking for pan-coronavirus antibodies, again, anticipating there would be additional outbreaks. Certainly, we hadn't anticipated anything of this magnitude, more like on the order of SARS or MERS. Um, and so we had some activity ongoing already. And we scaled that up very quickly uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it resulted in some very interesting antibodies that we have in our hands right now. So you have nominated two antibodies, is that correct, for clinical development? Yes. The, the initial antibody that we have, <coughs> which we've deemed S309, is very potently neutralizing against both SARS and um, uh, COVID-2. And hits an epitope that is highly conserved in that whole family of uh, coronaviruses. So we think this is uh, a broadly acting um, antibody and therefore, you know, could very well have the same characteristics as the flu, <coughs> excuse me, the flu antibody in that uh, it will be difficult for the virus to escape. We have engineered that antibody by changing the FC region. We've introduced uh, an LS mutation. That's a mutation um, owned by Zencor. We've licensed that mutation from them. That extends the half-life of the antibodies. Uh, and we know that that works in people. It's been in a number of the broadly neutralizing HIV antibodies. We have human data now. We have that same uh, antibody in our flu, the same mutation in our flu antibody. And in one of the two versions, we've made a second alteration in the FC receptor using some technology that comes out of Jeff Ravage's lab at Rockefeller. Uh, and that, that alteration affects the way the antibody binds to FC gamma receptors. And it enhances the binding to FC gamma 2A and 3A, which are stimulatory receptors, and almost eliminates the binding to 2B, which is an inhibitory receptor. The result is it's a much more potent um, interactor with cells of the immune system. What that means practically in the animal models, in mouse models with human FC receptors, is that in the short term with our flu antibody, that same alteration increases the potency about fivefold. And uh, in both the flu model and in the cancer model, antibodies that carry this alteration um, uh, bind more tightly to dendritic cells, uh, stimulate the dendritic cells, and that results in a T-cell response against the target of the antibody. Uh, and that T-cell response protects the animals uh, after the antibodies are gone, and so leads to long-term T-cell-mediated immunity. Okay, so you've got a couple different mechanisms going on here, one in which the antibody is directly neutralizing of the virus, 
It binds with that spike protein, the, the specific epitope, but also it recruits the T cell side of the immune system, some of those cells to, to attack the virus as well. That's exactly right. And so you have two different uh, kinds of profiles here. Uh, are you imagining that those antibodies would be given in combination or is, or maybe one is more appropriate for a certain kind of person than the other? Yeah, well, we are going to test both. This, uh, these antibodies are being manufactured now by Wuxi, and we intend to start clinical trials with both versions of this antibody uh, in the summer. At the same time, we have other antibodies that we are bringing forward. These are also potent neutralizing antibodies um, that bind to a different epitope and so don't compete with S309. And therefore are, you know, are likely to be either additive or more than additive. Uh, and we're bringing those forward as well. And we will determine in the interim really how refractory, um, COVID-2 is to being able to escape from 309. Uh, if we do, uh, find some escape mutants, then we'll certainly combine with other antibodies. If not, there are advantages to a single antibody. If you think about the amount of antibody that's going to have to be manufactured, the dose, the number of patients that will be able to be treated, uh, cost of goods, uh, all of that is more attractive if you have a single antibody. But of course, that antibody has to, um, uh, well, the virus has to be able not to escape from uh, uh, inhibition by that antibody. Now you mentioned you mentioned half life extension. What how long of a lasting kind of dose would you consider as the ideal product profile here? Well, I think the previous experience with this LS mutation has shown that the antibodies, you know, have a half life in the range of uh, two to three months. Probably not three months, but you know, somewhere uh, between two and three months. And that's a half-life, right? So you can then dose high enough so you can provide protection through one half-life or two half-lives or three half-lives. So depending on how long you'd like to protect the individuals. So if you think about who might be a candidate for this, there's been a lot of talk about healthcare workers on the front lines being the, the most at risk and the most in need of this kind of passive immunity with this kind of antibody. They could get something theoretically that um, would protect them for six months. That's correct. And that is exactly the approach we're taking to flu, that we think a single IM injection can protect people for six months. And that's based on knowing the potency of the antibody, you know, calculations of how much gets to the lung, uh, knowing the half-life of that antibody. So we would hope that we'd be able to do the same thing with COVID-2. Potency is another important point you've brought up. Um, and that leads to how much drug you actually need in the dose. And now you have to start doing the math on manufacturing and how much capacity and how much is that going to cost. I mean, what have you learned about those calculations? What, what looks feasible for you? Yes, well, we've, we, those are exactly the considerations. Uh, we have, um, you know, inside of VIR, some very experienced people in process development and manufacturing of uh, antibodies. And we've done all these calculations, of course, for the flu antibody, which was going to start phase two for prevention of flu this month. But of course, that's delayed because of the, the COVID-ish situation. Uh, so we've applied a lot of that thinking. Uh, if you think about 
what a dose is likely to be. And these are not actual doses. These are hypothetical doses, but probably not too far off. If you think about the using the antibody as uh, prophylactic, you can think about a couple of hundred milligrams. If you think about using it therapeutically, you probably need a much higher dose because the viral load is higher. And you can probably just think about two grams. Okay, now therapeutically, that's for someone who's already been exposed, they're in the hospital, and they need something to uh, mitigate their symptoms. Yeah, well, therapeutically, you can think about two paradigms. One is patients who are uh, you know, symptomatic but have not yet progressed to respiratory distress, and you could uh, give them the uh, antibody and see if you can prevent development of the uh, respiratory distress. Or you could give it to patients who are in the ICU uh, to see if you can help uh, their outcomes as well. I think that latter okay. one is probably the most challenging for an antibody to do. So, Yeah, and there are other options for those patients being tested, like antivirals and such. Right. Okay, but, but this difference between 200 mil, milligrams and 2 grams is pretty big. Um, you know, with something that uh, could potentially be demanded by a lot of people, um, what kind of capacity manufacturing capacity might be necessary? And does that exist? Uh, well, let me talk to that a bit. Um, you're absolutely right. That is going to be an issue. Uh, you know, there are a number of um, large, very large scale stainless steel plants in the world, and they all have a very similar design. They have what are called six packs. So the six 15,000 liter reactors, sometimes 20,000 liter reactors, but in that scale. One of those plants with a modern high efficiency process with a cell line that has a good yield can produce about 10 metric tons of antibody per year. So if you think that each metric ton, that's a million grams, right? And so for um, two uh, gram dose, that's 500,000 doses, right? Per metric ton. Uh, it's 5 million doses per, uh, for prophylactic use. So that's not enough, right? <laughs> and so you need multiple metric tons, probably tens of metric tons, depending on the, you know, the scale of the epidemic and how it plays out. So we've put a lot of effort into securing manufacturing capacity. And I can tell you, as we sit here today, we have the ability to make uh, many metric tons of the antibodies. RareSight delivers precision biology solutions for circulating tumor cell analysis designed to accelerate the pace of your cancer research. RareSight leverages a world-class assay design team and end-to-end -end platform with biomarker-enabling technology to provide CTC assays that are rigorously validated for accuracy and reproducibility. RareSight is the only full-service provider delivering custom assay development services, long-term biobanking of patient samples, CLIA-validated CTC enumeration, multi-biomarker analysis, and single-cell retrieval for DNA sequencing. RareSight currently supports a wide range of global clinical trials with deep expertise, personalized service, and short turnaround times. Keep your research on track by engaging the RareSight services team at info at rarecite.com or at rarecite.com slash rc.
We've heard a lot about people in the biotech industry setting aside some of traditional rivalries and kind of silo thinking and really banding together here in pre-competitive consortiums and just rolling up sleeves and helping each other out. Um, what has your experience been these last couple months? And, and then I want to bridge that to the manufacturing question as well. Sure. Look, it's been uh, uh, quite amazing, actually. And I think it's brought out the best in our industry. People really are rolling up their sleeves saying, what can we do? This is a global public health issue. We want to help. And so we have signed many collaborations, you know, some of which we've announced, some of which we haven't, uh, which really just say, OK, we're going to start working together. And um, if if things pan out, we'll figure out the business stuff later. But we don't have time to spend three months negotiating before we begin working. So let's just start and you know, sign a simple material transfer agreement or something like that. And you start. And so we've done a lot of those. I think I know other companies have as well. And that's been great because it allows you to just um, try lots of things, lots of combinations, different technologies, different combinations. Um, and, you know, knowing that a lot of them aren't going to pan out and uh, but hoping that some of them will. You mentioned Wuxi is helping you. Samsung Biologics is another one I saw recently. And of course, GSK. Could you talk just a little bit about the GSK partnership and why that's significant? Yeah, so that, that's a really important partnership. I think GSK, um, it, you know, is incredibly good infectious disease company. They are one of, if not the world's best vaccine companies. They share a similar philosophy for us on how to approach these diseases, just an emphasis on functional genomics, human genetics, uh, data sciences, and immunology. And so, you know, we were having discussions with JSK. Uh, it naturally evolved into a um, uh, an agreement uh, to work on COVID-2 together. Um, and that came to just as an exact came together incredibly quickly. You know, um, in, in a matter of weeks, we're working together based upon a binding uh, memorandum of understanding. So, again, not wanting to take the time to you know, complete all the contract negotiations. So we'll finish that now, you know, and uh, we are subject to HSR review. So that imposes some time that we can't get around. But once we're through the HSR review, we can start uh, immediately working uh, with JSK. Now, what kind of difference will that make for you in terms of your timetables? I mean, Veer is a, is still a... Um a development stage biotech company. I mean, a pretty well-financed and, and capable one, but um, you don't have, you know, all these manufacturing assets and plants around the world, maybe like a GSK does. You're right. So GSK brings to the table a lot of capabilities that we don't have. So they have some manufacturing capacity. They have regulatory experience all around the world um, and uh, clinical trial experience all around the world in infectious diseases. So they bring all of that to the table. It will greatly facilitate the development of, of, the, uh, of the antibodies. Um, we're also working with them on a second approach, which is really um, the use of CRISPR to knock out cellular genes. And we've been doing this now for a number of pathogens, and GSK has been taking a similar approach. So you can use CRISPR to knock out every gene in the genome. Right, one by one. So any given cell has a single gene knocked out. 
and since they're all barcoded, you can do this in a flask. You don't have to have individual wells. And in the most sim sim conceptually simple example, you can have a collection of cells which between them have every gene knocked out or every gene activated, and then infect them with the virus, pick out the survivors, identify the genes that have conferred resistance to that pathogen. Uh, then you use data sciences and we have some machine learning algorithms that piece all that information into pathways and cellular processes. You combine that with information you've gotten out of screening from other pathogens, and you can get real insight into where you might want to intervene in a cellular process in order to block the ability of a virus to replicate and kill those cells. So that's a complementary platform, technology-wise. And it can be fast and if we're lucky, right? Because if you're lucky, you identify cellular targets against which there is an existing drug either on the market or in clinical trials somewhere. This has happened in some of the other screens that we've done, and we've gotten our hands on those compounds, and they, in fact, are antiviral. And so we don't yet know if we'll find those things as we do the COVID-2 screens, but if we were, that could be another very fast route to a therapeutic. You mentioned GSK has regulatory capabilities. Um, the FDA is under the gun to move as quickly as possible. How, how has the FDA been for you guys to work with? I think, look, the regulatory, not just the FDA, but other regulatory agencies around the world are, you know, are being very flexible. They, as my view, they're doing exactly what they should be doing, which is, um, you know, having some flexibility for COVID to allow um, things to move forward more quickly while, you know, insisting that the trials be done in a way that doesn't jeopardize uh, patient safety. So I have uh, no no complaints about the regulatory agencies. I think they're doing what they can to uh, speed up uh, the, the processes. I think everyone feels the same sense of urgency that we need uh, something that can treat people and prevent the uh, illness, vaccines, therapeutics, a combination, uh, not only to protect peoples who are have COVID or could get COVID, but just to allow society to get back to some kind of normal state of functioning. Is there a specific thing that you could point to, like, I don't know, even something small, like approving an assay uh, in, in a week versus, you know, a couple of months? Well, I think we are, we and others are taking what would be normally be a two year process and condensing it into a few months. And in order to do that, you can't just do things exactly the way you were doing before, but do them faster. You can save some time if you do that, but you have to do things in parallel that you might have otherwise done in sequence. And so the whole, for example, the whole manufacturing process, at least the initial processes, are somewhat different from the, the, um, the traditional manufacturing processes. Uh, and, you know, still assuring patient safety, but, but different. And that needs some, a little bit of flexibility on the part of the regulatory agencies. So far, uh, all our discussions in, uh, was, uh, indicate that that's just fine, right? That they're, willing to be a little, you know, a little flexible and work with us in ways that we can assure patient safety, but um, uh, move quickly. 
Now, coming back to something at the beginning, uh, I mentioned that, you know, you're a company that has other programs going on and you want to make sure that they keep progressing too, or at least some of them. Um, How have you thought about managing your portfolio at this time when, I mean, a good percentage of your company is now dedicated to this, this new thing? Yeah, to the extent that we can, we are moving our other programs forward um, as quickly as we can. They are necessarily delayed, but not because of a lack of resources on our part, but by the fact that clinical trials around the world are just delayed because because of the COVID situation. Hepatitis B, we just reported yesterday, or phase two data from our siRNA, Hep B, that we're doing together with L-Nylum. Those data are quite compelling looks like a really good siRNA. Uh, we will start a combination trial of that um, siRNA together with interferon. It was scheduled to start this month, actually. It's delayed a little bit, so it will get it started in the second half of this year, but we're pushing that forward. We have an antibody uh, that we want to combine with that siRNA, uh, which we think has really interesting properties that, again, was supposed to start its clinical trial this month also delayed till the second half of the year, but still moving forward. Um, our flu trial, also starting phase two this month, they're scheduled to do that. Um, we've now postponed until the Northern Hemisphere flu season, which will begin next fall. Um, and then, you know, we'll see how much COVID is affecting um, uh, flu next fall. But so all those programs are on track. We're pushing them forward. I think what has given, frankly, is some of the earlier research programs, since we have put, you know, most of our early stage research people on approaches to COVID. So identifying additional antibodies. We have a collaboration with Alnylum to bring forward siRNAs that would target COVID-2. So we have some of those that are are moving forward that take resources as well. So uh, we are... um, I think in the fortunate position where we can be aggressive about COVID and to the extent that we can still, uh, you know, because of the slowdown in clinical trials, still keep our other programs on track. Now, I don't know if you've had a chance to think about this much yet, but how have some of these changes to your company and the way you work and the way you interact with all these external parties, how might it um, affect the way you operate um, coming out the other side of this. Uh, I, I, I guess, you know, because this won't be the last epidemic, right? <laughs> are, are we going to learn some lessons here? I think we are. We've been thinking a lot about this. We, and I think many other biotech companies, have our people packed fairly closely together in open space. So if you want to spread a disease, that's kind of the perfect environment. Um, as we go back to work, uh, we won't be able to have people so close together. Right? And so we are, it, it makes an issue with the way we've had our furniture designed and um, the amount of space that we have. So we're going to have to think about how to space people out more. And that involves either getting more space or having people work from home or some people work continue to work from home. Uh, I, you know, we are all working from home now, except for the laboratory people who are in uh, every day. Uh, we've kind of learned how to do that uh, over time. So the work is proceeding 
as far as I can tell, as quickly as, or maybe more quickly than it would have if we were all together. So there's no loss of efficiency. There is a sense of isolation and you have to be careful that you don't lose a sense of community because everybody's, uh, their people aren't together. So we have weekly all employee calls. We have a number of other events that we do over, over Zoom. Uh, you know, we have Zoom cocktail hour every Friday afternoon. So we've, you know, we have programs for kids because people are at home with their children now. So we have story hours for the children of our employees. So we've done what we can in order to make working from home uh, a little more um, acceptable and a little less isolating. I think some of that will continue after we get back. I, I think some of this will probably reflect a permanent change in the way we work. Well, I'm sure your employees, a lot of them are highly motivated, to say the least, to, to put their skills to work on this. Um, but I guess I'm also thinking, will this uh, create some kind of new muscle memory, I guess, across the industry in terms of overall industry preparedness and responsiveness? I certainly hope that's the case, not just across the industry, but among governments as well. So that, you know, we have national policies that allow us to be better prepared. You know, there was, you know, <clears throat> I think the, you know, the SARS outbreak caused some, um, you know, desire to be better prepared for pandemics. But of course, that was a lim- self-limiting outbreak. And so the initial enthusiasm waned um, after the, the epidemic faded. Uh, MERS was a little bit of a wake up, but of course that was restricted to certain parts of the world. This obviously is not. And so I think I'm hoping that this, uh, you know, causes more awareness and more preparedness, not just across the industry, but among governments. You know, if, and if you just think about viral outbreaks, there aren't a thousand different viruses that are threats to global pandemics. You can name the, you know, five most likely viral families to cause these outbreaks, you could have programs to be prepared uh, for outbreaks from those families. I'm hoping that's what results from this. Uh, certainly a lot of enthusiasm to do that now, but it's going to need to persist for some years uh, when we're not in a crisis mode. Well, I'm sure you saw the um, Bill Gates's editorial in the New England Journal from a few weeks ago when he said that the job of a leader in a crisis like this is to respond as best as possible uh, to the current outbreak, but also to lay the foundation with preparations to uh, you know, defend against the next one. Completely agree. That's exactly right. The industry is doing everything that we can to respond to this one. You know, I, I know if you saw the Washington Post article that said it was chaos, um, you know, the, the U.S. response to therapeutics was quite, was quite chaotic. Um, I, you know, I understand where they're coming from. There are so many little trials going on that are largely, you know, some of them are sponsored by companies, a lot of them sponsored by academics who are trying to do something. On the other hand, I think NIH has done a lot to coordinate uh, industry efforts. And I don't feel like it's chaotic. I feel like it's uh, um, been a rather thoughtful approach that uh, NIH is taking. Gates is also trying to, to uh, you know, coordinate things. And there are some, you know, academic sponsored trials that are thinking more broadly about how to, you know, bring things together in a rational way. So 
I think um, I, I disagree with the, uh, the Post article. Well, maybe some of the chaos they're referring to are things like anecdotal reports and case series on hydroxychloroquine and that that kind of thing, um, which is not really what you are doing. And, and so, George, I wish you the best of luck. I'm sure that the listeners of this show uh, feel the same way. Keep up the good work. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. No, happy to be here, and thanks for your interest. Thanks for listening to The Long Run a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. See you next episode.